Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris once again. This week on a special at-home edition of At The Movies, a low-caste Indian driver tries to break free of his social and economic limitations with tragic consequences. I think it's wrong the way you work for us. You should be finishing your education, starting your own family. Asok sir, and you are family to me, madam. Don't say that. That's not true, Balram. Really, madam? No, you can't possibly believe that. A lowly orphan tries to break free of her social and economic limitations. Is a handsome prince the solution to her problems? I I assure you, it doesn't matter to me that you're not of royal birth. No, that's not it. We'll get married. We'll get married and you will live the rest of your life as royalty. Royalty? What about my work? Two androids and six frozen embryos attempt to start a new civilization on a distant planet. The internal distress you're feeling is normal. You've had a new processor installed. Now you need to stay calm or you're going to undo all my hard work. You want me to remain calm, Mother? Why did you reactivate me? And 20 years after the attacks on the World Trade Center, a documentary takes you inside the President's inner circle on that fateful day. I knew if we were under attack, uh, my job as President was to protect the country. Uh, and, you know, I didn't know who, who they were yet. One thing on the to-do list was to kick their ass. I'm sorry, what's your name? Sir, Balram, sir. Balram. Yeah, Balram. So, uh, Balram, do you know what the internet is? No, sir. But I could drive to the market right now, sir, and get as many as you want. No, it's okay. Thank you. Do you have Facebook? Yes, sir. B- books. I always loved books, sir. Yeah, I heard you can read. Have you ever seen a computer? Uh, yes, sir. Actually, we had many of them in the village with the goats. Goats? Yes, sir. The goats are pretty advanced to use computers. I could tell from their faces. I had made a mistake. Pinky, you see, he's got two, three years schooling in him. He can't read and write. Or he doesn't get what he's read. He's half-baked. Okay, now you're being a jerk. He's standing no, right not, there. I'm, I'm not being a jerk. Come on, Ashok. You're missing the point here, Pinky. Our driver represents the biggest untapped market in India, waiting to serve the web, buy a cell phone, rise up into middle class. Something I can help him do. Because when you scroll through Netflix, everything basically looks the same, the same rectangular images, similar tiny plot summaries, and inscrutable categories like suspenseful, emotional, exciting, it can be difficult to work out What's straight-to-video entertainment fodder? And what's a festival-quality arthouse feature film? The tent poles, like Oscar winner Roma or Scorsese's The Irishman, will sometimes get decent media coverage, which can help. But we all know there are hidden gems lurking deep in the algorithm. We just don't always know what they are. The White Tiger is an example. It dropped onto Netflix back in January to little or no fanfare, but in pre-streaming times it would probably have been programmed in festivals and then go on to a reasonable life in cinemas. 
based on the Booker Prize-winning novel by Aravind Adiga, The White Tiger is like an angry counterpoint to romanticised portraits of modern India like Slumdog Millionaire. It's adapted and directed by Ramin Barani, who has made some of the most humane portraits of underdog life in the last 15 years. Films like Man Push Cart, about a former Pakistani rock star who makes a tenuous living selling coffee and bagels on the streets of Manhattan. Or 99 Homes, about the Florida eviction industry caused by the global financial crash. He has an innate empathy with the downtrodden, those that society usually chooses to ignore. And in The White Tiger, the Indian caste system, with its strict social and economic separation, gives him plenty to build his outrage on. And with Adash Gurav as Balram, he has an anti-hero that you root for and are repelled by at the same time. Do people still remember me? Sir, how are sir? We all say our father is gone, sir. The best and the most holy of the landlords, like Gandhi ji, sir. Like Gandhi? Yes, sir. Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi ji. Okay, okay. What do you want? Sir, with your permission, sir, I want to be a driver for you. Or for your son. Are you a Muslim? No, sir. I bathe regularly. I keep myself clean, sir, and I'm not lazy. Hey, I'm Ashok. Hey, What's don't do that. You need a driver, let us take him for a spin. Balram is born a Dalit, what we used to call an untouchable, in a tiny village but he has high hopes that education will provide a way out of those social constraints. But his father dies of tuberculosis because the village is too far from a hospital, and Balram has to give up his dreams of becoming a scholar to try and find a job to support his extended family. Cynical and philosophical, Balram sees the Indian servant class as like chickens in a chicken coop, they can smell the blood, and they know they are next for the chopping block, but they never rebel, they never fight back. He's determined to do better. Winning a job as a driver for the son of a local landlord, Balram starts to see more of how the other half live. The other half? Forgive me, the other 1%. Set in 2005, the story takes place with the background of India's emerging role as a technology outsourcing superpower. Balram's master, Ashok, played by Rajkumar Rao, has just returned to India from New York with his wife Pinky, Priyanka Chopra, who also co-produced the film, and he sees a shiny future, but his family is mired in the dirty old coal business, which requires prodigious bribes to corrupt politicians to sustain. All the while, Balram is watching and learning, putting up with humiliation after humiliation by this family who barely consider him to be a human being. All of them, except Pinky, perhaps. I think it's wrong the way you work for us. You should be finishing your education, starting your own family. Asok, sir, and you are family to me, madam. Don't say that. That's not true, Balram. Really, madam? No, you can't possibly believe that. Do you know what my parents do in America? They're on this shitty little bottega in Jackson Heights, selling beer, pan, and porn. I used to do my homework in the basement. One night I saw my mom being held at gunpoint, and she still finished working the entire night. I got out, Balram. What is it that you want to do? I want to serve you and a sir. No, okay, stop. No, no, stop saying that. That's why this caste system thing is total bullshit. You know Mukesh tried to stop Ashok from marrying me? because of this caste thing? 
A terrible tragedy forces Balram to act, but the action he feels obliged to take is equally terrible. For the first half of the film, I was thinking of the world as Dickensian, as if Balram is a kind of David Copperfield figure, making his way in an uncaring world through ingenuity and decency. But the second half has a different literary flavour. It's like a fatalist Russian novel, something by Dostoevsky, perhaps. It says there is no good way out of this trap, which is a terribly discomforting thing to believe, but it's hard to argue with on this evidence. The film feels authentic and vivid. The street scenes are noisy and colourful, the hotel suites shiny and golden, the village dusty and barren. Of the actors, I was only previously aware of Priyanka Chopra. She's something of a megastar in India and has illuminated a few American movies as well as marrying the pop star Nick Jonas. Adash Gurav as Balram has an almost impossible job to play naive, conniving, victim and aggressor at the same time, a character at the very limit of his capacity, struggling to survive. He's great. Pardon me. This is no way to start a story. I'm Indian after all, and it is an ancient and venerated custom of my people to start a story by praying to a higher power. So I too should start off by kissing some god's foot? But which god? The Muslims have one. The Christians have three. And we Hindus have 36 million. Making a grand total of 36 million and four divine feet for me to choose from. There are some who think that none of these gods exist. But in my country, it pays to play it both ways. The Indian entrepreneur has to be straight and crooked, mocking and believing, sly and sincere, all at the same time. The White Tiger is rated 16 plus for violence and it's streaming on Netflix now. Future Queen, yeah! What's that, Prince? You'd like to dance? Uh-uh-uh, get in line, Your Highness. Hold on. <gasps> wow, they're beautiful. They're glass. Anyway, you can make them more comfortable. No. But your magic. Women's shoes are as they are. Even magic has its limits. Oh. Ow. How am I gonna... Feet don't work like this. Getting better. Oh. Oh! There's something delightfully modern about the new version of Cinderella that's streaming on Amazon Prime. It hasn't been updated in the sense that it's set in the modern world, it's still castles and villages and balls and glass slippers and talking mice, but it does have a refreshingly modern sensibility, as witnessed by the energetic Billy Porter as the fabulous godmother we just heard from. It's zippy, anachronistic and colourful, and will probably be fine family entertainment on a Friday night. Just don't look or listen too closely, because scrutiny is something that it will not stand up to. Ella is played by Cuban-American pop star Camila Cabello, by far the best thing in the film, and someone who I hope cinema audiences will see much more of. 
She wrote one of the songs too, one of the best. In fact, even though most of the music in this new Cinderella is repurposed pop hits from the last four decades, the two best songs are new. Cabello's ballad Million to One and the wicked stepmother Edina Menzel's Dream Girl. Much more interesting than a tired and obvious retread of Madonna's Material Girl. Why are we doing Cinderella work? Because I want you to see what you're in for if you don't marry a man of means. Like Thomas. Thomas. He's quite the catch. Too bad he hasn't been back in days. Well, if it's not Thomas, then it will just have to be some other man. Like him? No. No, 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 no. Do not cast your eyes on some farm boy. In this life, you must marry rich. Get yourself a man who can pay for everything, and then you will never so much as have to hang your wet undergarments again. You must always think and act like this. Some boys kiss me, some boys hug me. You don't need me to tell you the story, do you? It's Cinderella. I will let you know the differences that give this version that modern sensibility, and a message you'll be pleased to share with your kids. The fairy godmother is now a fabulous godmother, played by a loud gay black man in a dress. Ella doesn't dream of marrying a prince. She wants to open a dress shop and design clothes. Robert, the handsome prince himself, played by Nicholas Galitzine, is kind of mere about becoming a king and would rather do his own thing. His sister Gwen, Tallulah Grieve, knows she would make a much better ruler and keeps making helpful suggestions about reducing poverty and introducing sustainable energy. King Rowan, played by Pierce Brosnan with excellent hair, is so focused on his royal legacy he can't see his family legacy in front of him. And Menzel, as the wicked stepmother, is given a softening backstory that really doesn't work because she's been so mean to Ella in the first half of the film she actually does deserve some kind of comeuppance. But this film doesn't do that. Everyone gets a happy ending and a huge Mamma Mia-like dance party at the end. Sounds like you need to lower your price. <sighs> Sir, please don't pile on, okay? Not today. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's a beautiful dress. Right? I should be allowed to sell it. Sure, but women can't own shops. Uh-huh, and that's unfair. Is it? Yes! Us ladies give birth. We run households. Surely we can run a business. Can't be that hard. I mean... Wouldn't it just be great if I could have my own shop right here? I could hang my garments on that side and I'd say things like, thank you, come again, or hot enough out there for you. Hot? It's banter. It breaks the ice. Okay, what am I doing? I'm going home. I'm talking to a stranger. I'll take it. Take what? The dress. I'll buy it. Is this pity? Are you doing this because you feel sorry for me? Because... That's really no, nice. I'm just trying to do my part to correct a flawed system. If you enjoy the colourful anachronism of that pseudo-historical romance, Bridgerton, you'll have a feast here. The costumes are by the same designer, Ellen Mirojnik, and my eyes were just hurting by the end, but I get that some people love this stuff. The film is written and directed by Kay Cannon, who is best known for the Pitch Perfect trilogy, and she also contributed vocal arrangements for many of the tunes. Where this Cinderella really fell down for me were the jokes. I'm sorry, but three half jokes don't add up to one good one. And there are a lot of limp lines that really don't land, no matter how much energy goes into selling them. Maybe one reason why it feels so disjointed is that it was half shot before COVID and then finished in a hurry under COVID compliance restrictions. 
So much of the production seems rushed. The makeup on the boys is shoddy, and the sets look like someone has just raided the Pinewood storage facility. But if you concentrate on Miss Cabello as Cinderella rather than all of that, you'll have a perfectly decent time. What? I just had no idea tonight would go like this. This is precisely how I hoped tonight would go. You're the one. I pick you to be my princess. What's wrong? I assure you, it doesn't matter to me that you're not of royal birth. No, that's not it. We'll get married. We'll get married and you will live the rest of your life as royalty. Royalty? What about my work? My dresses? Well, that would most Can... likely be frowned upon. Women have a very prescribed role prescribed in court, role. but I would make sure that you were dressed by the finest dressmakers in all the land. I'm a dressmaker. I know. There's just no one else in this world I'd rather be with than you. Robert, stop. I don't want a life stuck waving from a royal box any more than a life confined to a basement. I have dreams that I have to chase. Cinderella is rated PG and is streaming now on Amazon Prime. Belief in the unreal can comfort the human mind, but it also weakens it. Civilization you're seeding here will be built on humanity's belief in itself not an imagined deity. And if it's not imagined? They won the war after all. What if praying will make Spiria better? No, Campion. Only science can do that. It didn't help the others. Because we have more to learn. We will never advance. Unless you resist the urge to seek solace in fantasy. Ridley Scott, the director of Alien and Blade Runner and countless other terrific films, is 83 years old and still going fairly strong. But I was surprised to find his name on the new science fiction series Raised by Wolves, which is screening now on Neon. Not just as executive producer, but also as director of the first two episodes. And they're great. We got hooked by them but then found ourselves limping along to the finish line as the remaining eight episodes, several directed by Ridley's son Luke, failed to maintain that great start. The series is set in the future, after a war between atheists and the Mithraic, followers of a god named Sol, results in the destruction of Earth. Both sides attempt to start colonies on a distant and, to be honest, fairly inhospitable planet, but there's the very real danger that both sides will just start that rubbish up again. Both sides suffering from the kind of zealotry that has bad results for anyone who gets in between them. The atheists send a pod containing two androids, mother and father, and six frozen embryos. Not needing life support means they can travel faster and get a head start. But that also means that they are ill-equipped for the hardships of the new planet and all but one of the children die. The soul worshipper's ark, called Heaven, which is a bit on the nose, arrives with enough living families to actually start a colony. And Father decides that the atheist's only remaining child should join them, prompting a swift and extraordinarily violent reaction from Mother, who, it appears, has powers that she didn't know she had kidnapping some of the Mithraic children and destroying everyone else on the Ark appears to set them up nicely once again. 
But that's only episode one, and there's a lot more water to flow under that bridge. A lot. Last but not least, number six. He's not breathing. Give him to me. Our programming dictates that we need to break it down, feed him to the others. Let me hold him first. We need to do it soon, before its cells start to deteriorate. You need to save your energy for the others. Wait. And that's the main problem we had with Raised by Wolves. It starts out with some elegant, measured world building. You know, not telling you too much so that your curiosity is always being piqued. But then in later episodes, it just doesn't stop. More and more world building. Old Earth in flashback and this new planet and its various dangerous inhabitants. And so much stuff that it's hard to know exactly what Raised by Wolves wants to be. Is it a science fiction story full of ideas? Is it an allegory? Is it a spooky horror story? Is it a monster movie? Yes, is the answer. But by the end, I felt it was just treading water. You know those shows that act like they're moving the plot along, but in reality, by the end of each episode, you're right back where you started, wondering why you just spent an hour with these people. And there's the other bane of our television-watching lives now, the cliffhanger. Hardly any story actually ends these days. They're teased out to be, the producers hope, seven or more seasons long, all ending unsatisfactorily. And then you have to wait, sometimes years, to find out what happens next. Economists have this term, sunk cost, which is when you've spent so much money on something car repairs, your internet startup company, that you have to keep spending or what you've already spent is wasted. Modern television is like that. We watched season two and three of The Handmaid's Tale, frustrated as heck with it. But every new season, we would grudgingly tune in again because to not do so was to acknowledge all those wasted hours. Luckily, in that case, season four was much better, so the investment eventually paid off but so often it doesn't. Raised by Wolves is a big-budget, effects-heavy adult science fiction that will appeal to those who thought Game of Thrones wasn't violent enough, but also there's a thoughtful side to it that eventually just gets swamped. Maybe watch the first two episodes as if you're watching a new Ridley Scott film. That's what worked best for me. <coughs> the internal distress you're feeling is normal. You've had a new processor installed. Now you need to stay calm or you're going to undo all my hard work. You want me to remain calm, Mother. Why did you reactivate me? Your eyes. Do they look all right? What? My original eyes had to be removed. For the sake of the children. The children? Yes. Campion and now five more. They come from an ark called heaven. Don't worry, Father. We'll get it right this time. Raised by Wolves is rated R16 for violence and something called 
content and it is streaming now on Neon. My assistant came in and said, a plane is at the World Trade Center. And I said, well, that's a strange accident. And I called the president. Yeah, I thought it was pilot error. I, I couldn't imagine anything other than a lousy pilot uh, getting lost. And uh, in other words, it was an accident. He'd been told a small twin-engine prop plane crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. I was concerned, but I did not think of it as a national security threat. And I didn't think that it should disrupt the president's day. This weekend sees the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the attacks by al-Qaeda on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon in September 2001. There are quite a few projects landing this week that are either inspired by or purport to tell the story of what happened that day and afterwards. On Netflix, there's an eight-part documentary series called Turning Point, 9-11 and the War on Terror, which is probably pretty apposite considering what's been going on in Afghanistan in recent weeks. There's also a feature called Worth, which stars Michael Keaton and Stanley Tucci as the lawyers who battled to get a fund for the victims started, but on the way had to put a value on each human life lost. And on Apple TV+, Plus, there's a feature documentary called 9-11 Inside the President's War Room, which purports to tell the story of that single day from the point of view of America's leadership. And the film has everyone from George W. Bush on down. That in itself is quite an achievement. Now it hits me as I'm standing there next to the president that he's the only one that doesn't know the second plane has hit the building. And it seemed like an eternity. It probably only lasted two minutes. And that was when the chief of staff made the decision to walk in and just go ahead and whisper it in his ear. Andy Card comes up behind me and says, second plane has hit the second tower. America's under attack. And I'm watching a child read. I was studying him intently and his mouth was kind of drawn and tight. I really wasn't planning to watch anything about 9-11 this year. I don't need to see any of that footage again. That morning was up there with the most traumatic things I've ever witnessed, and my understanding of what the world was capable of changed forever. I'll never forget waking up at 6am to Hewitt Humphrey reading the news on Morning Report and being absolutely stunned. So, no, not really interested in reliving it, thanks. But it turns out that this film does have something to offer. And yes, it doesn't shy away from the horrific footage of the day. But there's a startling amount of behind-the-scenes material captured by White House photographers, so the access is amazing. By focusing on Bush, Cheney, Rove, Rice, and many of the lesser-known characters who were caught up in the events of the day, we get insight we never had before. There's the pilot of Air Force One who commands the Secret Service to protect the cockpit in case there's a terrorist planted aboard. The Treasury Secretary who soon realises that his wife is on one of the hijacked planes. The Press Secretary who thought he'd killed himself when he accidentally swallowed a full week's supply of the anti-anthrax medicine he'd been given. It personalises the whole thing and neutralises a lot of my inbuilt antagonism towards those people, that government. Even Bush himself has moments where he knows exactly what to do and it's usually providing comfort to those that need it. He knew how to do that at least and his instincts there were good. On the strategic side, 
Not so much. I knew if we were under attack, uh, my job as president was to protect the country. Uh, and, you know, I didn't know who, who they were yet. One thing on the to-do list was to kick their ass. I found myself thinking about leadership and how hard it must be to express calm and confidence and security to a worried population when there is so much you simply don't know. On 9-11, Air Force One flew around American skies, only able to catch up on the news when they flew over a television transmission tower. The fog of war, indeed. It was a day full of a lot of sadness. And I knew that mother and dad would be worried about how I was feeling. And uh, I finally found them. And mother got on the phone. And uh, I said, Mother, where are you, by the way? She said, we're outside Milwaukee. I said, you got to be kidding me. What are you doing there? She said, you grounded our plane. And so, <laughs> uh, it's typical mother. And uh, was I concerned about them? You bet. But once I knew they were safe, I was fine. 9-11 Inside the President's War Room is rated TV 14 by Apple. But believe me, even after 20 years, those images have the power to inflict some serious trauma. Parental guidance is advised, etc. It's streaming now on Apple TV+. Plus. And that's our program for this week. One person who passed this week whose name you might not be familiar with is the composer Mikis Theodorakis, who has left us at the age of 96. Best known for Zorba's Dance from Zorba the Greek in 1964, he also scored Z by Costa Gavras in 1969, and this, the theme to Sidney Lumet's Serpico from 1972, which starred Al Pacino. I'm Dan Slevin, and you can find me on Twitter as at Dan Slevin, that's all one word, and there's more of me at rnz.co.nz forward slash widescreen. Simon Morris will be back here to host At The Movies at roughly the same time next week, so do join him then. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.